Hey everyone, and welcome to the Marketing Blender Show. I'm Dacia. And I'm Daisy. Now today, we are talking about how to calculate your marketing ROI. And this is not necessarily the easiest topic, but it is not one that you and I are scared of. Not at all. And this is actually a great topic to introduce to your entire organization because you want them to understand that every action that your personnel take and that your team takes has an impact on how well your business is going to do. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that sometimes the first step in marketing ROI is actually the simplest, but people overcomplicate this so much in their head that they don't start anywhere. So where do you start? Well, first of all, simply know your numbers. You need to know what is the number that you're hitting and more importantly, how is it broken down? So as an example, what I mean by that is how many new clients do you need? How much current business do you need to maintain? Maybe you need a number for upselling or cross-selling, but get really specific around whether or not your goal is actually attainable. And then how is it broken down? Because when you're referring to marketing, ROI, each marketing aspect needs to roll up into that revenue goal, but it needs to be broken down. So really, Daisy, and this, you know, this basic component of making sure that we're documenting an attainable goal and where those numbers needs to come from, it's amazing how infrequent, infrequently we have clients actually bring us that breakdown on the front end. That's true. One of the first questions that I always ask in the revenue conversation is, what is your current client mix? Is it mostly whales with a few little businesses sprinkled in? Is it mostly mid-sized clients? Unless you understand what your current revenue mix is, it's very difficult to understand where to target your marketing efforts to get ROI. So for example, you might have mostly large clients, but if you continue to go after them, it's going to be extremely costly. And it's also going to mean that if you lose one, that's going to tank your revenue numbers. Sometimes it can be less expensive to bring in more smaller clients. And then sometimes it can actually be such a high acquisition cost for every customer, no matter what size, that you might as well go after the bigger one. So until you understand the, the finer points of your current revenue mix, it's very difficult to understand the ROI. Absolutely. And then the next one is about getting really specific on once you get inside of that revenue mix on how many customers or how many deals does that actually represent? So oftentimes when we work with clients, the number of customers or the number of deals that people actually need to hit that goal is very different than that murky area that they thought. It's so much more achievable to realize we need four large clients, 10 mid-sized clients and 20 small clients than we have to hit a $10 million revenue goal. So breaking that down, but it depends on your business model as well. Because for instance, with one client that we worked with, actually the key to scalable growth was getting their current clients past two deals per year. And that was an absolute game changer. But unless you have the specificity around exact numbers of clients or exact numbers of deals, then it can be very murky and you can really water down the impact of your marketing and your overall business development efforts if you haven't clearly identified what are you actually trying to accomplish. I actually had this conversation with an MSSP the other day where when I asked them how many new clients they needed to get, they told me how many seats they needed to sell. Yes. And I had to ask the question, how many actual human beings do you need to convince to say yes and give you money? Because that could be 20 seats, 
from, you know, a month long or two month long sales conversation, it could be 200. Yes. It could be 500. And you don't understand the marketing and sales effort that's going to go into landing clients if you're just looking at units like seats that don't represent decision makers. Oh, such a great point. And that happens frequently. I mean, we have a professional services client who frequently refers to his growth goals in how many team members he wants to add. Okay. That's fine to have that conversation, but then it has to be extrapolated back to what is the actual trackable revenue or acquisition target that allows you to do that. And we, we see a number of other things. We have another, we have a couple of clients that want to refer to their break-even point. Okay, I would like to help you do better <laughs> than break-even, but also, you know, simplifying what's the most efficient or effective way to go far past break even. And it's much less overwhelming than most clients think. And I think there's some fear that, um, that it's going to be bigger than they can actually handle. And frequently we see that that's not the case at all. It's much more reasonable than people assume. Absolutely. One of the other big obstacles that CEOs often face in understanding their ROI is they don't know what their customer churn rate. So I often get the deer in the headlights look when I ask this question, how do you know if you're losing customers? And I can't tell you how many CEOs I've talked to when I ask that question, they just go blank and they realize, oh crap, I don't know that. That is an unknown, unknown in my business. And the revenue risk is very real. One of the reasons that a lot of our clients come to us without having clarity on that question is that they have long sales cycles. Their clients are buying from them once every six months once every year, once every two years. How can you possibly track when you have that long of a time in between? Well, the number one way you can do that is by marketing to your existing customers, because then you're getting signals throughout that nurture process that let you know when account is at risk. This ad is brought to you by The Marketing Blender. As you guys know, I'm a fractional CMO, and actually at The Marketing Blender, there's a whole team of us. For a fraction of the cost of a full-time executive, you can hire a chief marketing officer to write your marketing plan, to clean up your messaging and your positioning, and to drive sustainable results. We oversee multiple partners, we help mentor team members, and most importantly, we build a marketing machine that will drive results for your company for years to come. If you're curious about what this looks like, and some of our engagements go from a couple months to a couple years, check out themarketingblender.com. I love that one. Now that leads me to be thinking about now where do new clients come from? Because I, and I just, I want to hit pause real quick on myself just because I so much want to add weight behind what you're saying. It doesn't actually matter how many net new clients you have if you're churning old clients faster. Like, and it's a reminder that actually marketing can impact profit because if you're retaining clients. It's a more profitable business model. And so you can put marketing behind customer experience in addition to net new. So I'm sorry, I was going to move on, but I'm like, oh, that's such an important one. I just didn't want to gloss over it too quickly. So the next question I did want to bring up is when you are talking about net new, you really need to be thinking, where are they coming from? So first, first of all, benchmark, where do your customers come from? And, and let me be clear with you, it's not acceptable for you to say, generally word of mouth, 
Are you sure? No, if you have data that can back that, meaning data could even be, I know exactly who referred that. I have a named referral partner or person that believes in us. That's fine. But generally, this hazy, it's all word of mouth is ineffective and it's oftentimes not true. So you really want to make sure that you are looking at your data. You really are challenging your sales reps or your marketers to very clearly and specifically attribute a lead to something specific, not general brand equity, because there's not as many clients out there that actually get word of mouth leads at that volume, unless you really are the only major player in your environment. That's absolutely true. One of the other things I want to talk about is the fact that it's not okay to have a marketing slush fund. Ugh. This is a surefire way to not be able to track marketing ROI at all. One of the common problems with bundling your marketing and your sales budget together is that marketing and sales are designed to do completely different things. Sales is about one-to-one -one interactions to close deals. Marketing is about one-to-many interactions that give your sales team more opportunities at bat. So sales is not scalable and it doesn't have the kind of impact on profitability that marketing does. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So speaking of slush fund, you know, it's very similar to what I was talking about just a moment ago, identifying clear lead sources. A really healthy lead source balance is actually four, five lead sources. So when I'm talking about lead sources, is it from paid digital marketing? Is it from referrals? Is it from word of mouth? Is it from your content marketing? You should be able to start to untangle the spaghetti and really identify where those lead sources are. Now, here's an important component. Does your spend align with where your opportunity can come from? Have you looked at your marketing budget marketing budget, not slush fund, and really thought through, oh, in order to amplify how many leads are coming from this one particular channel, we actually need to put money behind it. Because Daisy's correct, so frequently the money gets applied to a place that's not the problem you actually need to solve. And we see this really frequently around trade shows, around sales enablement, around this is always the way that we've either gone to market, that we've marketed, that we sell. And so the budget actually remains pretty static instead of this dynamic, exciting investment that can drive real trackable outcomes. And then you can optimize and get more for your spend. So I love, I love the fact that you're calling it a slush fund because unfortunately in action, that's how people frequently treat it. It's also not uncommon to see businesses setting aside a really substantial amount for a website when that's not the thing that's going to fix their lead flow. And again, this comes back to not only giving your budget a job, but giving each tactic on your marketing plan a job. If it doesn't have a job, it shouldn't be on the plan. When we're looking at applying tactics in a marketing plan, they have to drive toward reputation, revenue, or resilience. If they don't help you in one of those three ways, they get cut from the plan because they're either someone's favorite thing to do that doesn't actually help move the company forward, or they're the things that people believe they should be doing without evidence. Oh my gosh. I want to jump on that website example that you gave just a moment ago, because for instance, you know, you can build a website that is 
focused on SEO so that you can be found, that you can ex- you can extend your visibility and you can reach more strangers. However, if you're a company that has amazing brand reputation, amazing reach, you don't need your website to be SEO focused if your problem is that you can't convert all of that traffic and that brand reputation into the type of quality deals that you want. And those are very different ways to rebuild a new website. And you're right. Sometimes you don't even need one. You just need to change a few headlines because you're not being interesting enough or you don't have a strong enough hook. So I use the website example, and I probably sound like I'm beating a dead horse when I'm talking about solve the right problem. But let me give you one more example. We frequently get clients saying to us, we've got a lead gen problem. Okay, well, let's unpack that. Why do you have a lead gen problem? Is it because your leads are not quality? Is it because your sales team can't close the deal? Is it because you have no leads? Is it because you can't nurture the leads? Or do you maybe not have a lead generation problem and you're simply calling it that because you're not sure what your problem is? This is really, really important to uncover the root cause behind the actual problem because each one of those questions will actually lead you to a very different marketing solution and a very different metric that you are tracking. So make sure that all of the outcomes are driving to revenue, reputation, or resilience, and that you're clear which one you need to be focusing on right now. I'd like to piggyback on the lead generation topic for just a moment, because this is such a great place to segue into talking about calculating an appropriate cost per lead. This is a conversation we have with a lot of our clients, because especially if they've had a sales-driven organization in the past, and now they're using marketing to start driving leads, they don't always have a clear understanding of what they should be paying per lead. Yeah. As an example, if you have an average deal size of $20,000, and it costs you $200 to get a qualified lead, meaning a lead that you can get your sales team in front of, even if you only close one out of four of those leads, that is still a 25 times ROI on your marketing spend per lead. So don't look at lead cost as, oh, I think leads should always cost $5 or $10 or $20. Your leads should cost an appropriate amount based on the ROI that you're getting from them. So if you have an average ROI of 5x, that's pretty standard and you're doing pretty well. If it's 10x, that's really excellent. 25x, like in the example I just gave you from one of our clients, that's phenomenal. So don't freak out about cost per lead unless you understand how it relates to the average deal size. Yeah, it's a great point. And there's actually hidden math around the ROI you should be expecting or tracking to. And what I mean by that is every industry actually has published benchmarks from something called the CMO survey around what's the average amount as a percentage of budget or a percent of revenue that your industry spends on marketing. And for many industries, as an example, software in the B2B space, on in general, they're spending 10 to 15% of their total revenue on business development. Now, a little caveat on this, it may or may not include sales salaries, and you have to decide that for your business model, but it is your total spend, and what can you expect on that? Now, simple math, if you're spending 10% of your revenue, guess what? You're expecting and needing a 10x return on that investment. And so there's a benchmark, and then how do you get more. But Daisy's right. 5X is a really common one. And why? Because it's actually associated with how much you are spending to either maintain 
or grow, and it is dependent on where your competitors are. Now, there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up around specific dollars, and it's actually that there is a very specific way in order to calculate digital marketing ROI as well. I mean, I think a lot of our clients are surprised that Google and LinkedIn and Meta and name whatever, you can actually create a projection and then your CMO can help understand, yeah, that's appropriate for the budget that you have or it's not. And I'm surprised that this is not standard operating procedure with digital marketing that you use the projected numbers in the platforms to determine budget, not just how much do you want to spend? Like that is shocking to me that that's the typical question. I mean, most clients are going to go, I don't know, 500, 5,000, 5,000, 10,000. How, how, I don't know. How much am I supposed to spend on digital marketing? And it shouldn't be the client's responsibility to set the budget. It should be a collaborative conversation around what does the platform say in regards to how much you have to spend in order to win in your space. And you can actually see what competitors are spending. Most people have no idea that that is information that you can know. You can look at the ads that they're running and Google will tell you this is about how much they're spending a month to capture that top spot. So you have very clear benchmarks on what it's going to take for you to compete. Absolutely. And so I just want to reiterate that one more time in case you didn't hear me because it's, again, shocking that it's not common. Your platform, like let's pretend it's Google, you are able to enter. If I spend $5,000 a month, Google has projections on how much traffic that will drive and how many conversions, think leads, that Google predicts using their AI algorithm that you will get for $5,000. And so let's pretend that for $5,000, you're getting two leads. You can decide, is that $2,500 investment appropriate if you're spending a $50,000 or if you sell a $50,000 or $100,000 product or service? That might be appropriate for you, but that's the conversation, you guys. It's not a cherry pick. We hope this works. There are specific, clear, straightforward benchmarks that you can get in real time, and then you track your results to what it said, and that's how you know whether it's working or not. It is. I think the best way to wrap this up is talking about the tactics of tracking, the technology that we use. We have scorecards for each of our clients where we track the metrics that have been agreed upon as important and the KPIs that matter in the marketing plan. Ideally, we like to see customers using their CRM to track all of this data in one place, but often it's an Excel spreadsheet and that works fine too. It's knowing the numbers and consistently tracking them so you can make clear decisions. That's important. I love that. And you know, one note on that too is data visualization, meaning dashboards, they're beautiful. They feel good. But if you don't know immediately and your whole team doesn't know immediately what they're looking at by these pretty colorful pictures and bar charts and graphs, then they're not effective. And that's why we actually have a number of clients that have BI or have data, data visualization and we build an Excel spreadsheet because it's a faster way to have the right conversation around what's actually happening in the business and where's our impact really coming from, from marketing. So as long as you understand the numbers, you're right, it's not the mechanism, but doggone it, you guys, track your spend. If nothing else, track your spend. Also, make sure you're not tracking everything because not everything has equal importance, but if you put everything on a dashboard, it's going to pull you in a hundred different directions. If your website traffic was up 2% or down 1%, 
it's easy to get distracted and think, oh, we need to change something right away to change the outcome. That's not how you track the metrics that matter. You need to make sure that you don't confuse yourself, that every metric that you're tracking is directly related to the goals that you're trying to hit, and that all of the metrics you're tracking are actually things that you can take action to impact. Absolutely. Well, thanks, you guys. If you have additional questions, we would love to hear from you. Post them in the comments or feel free to DM either one of us or ping us on our email. But if you liked what you heard, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next week. Onward and upward. We hope you learned something today that will help you succeed with your marketing. And if you liked what you heard, definitely give us a thumbs up and a subscribe. Don't forget to check the show notes. We're sharing free tools and resources there. And you guys, we would love to hear your comments. So drop one in or send us an email and maybe we'll use your topic on a future show.